we hope to grow like everybody else. Uh, probably every business of any size has that goal. But this mindset that you need 100 PhDs to compete against you know, another firm, I think is, is just an excuse. I choose to uh, to not, you know, just ignore it. I can't fight it. It is what it is. So, you know, I just move along. If if that's the difference between somebody investing with us and not, um, you know, uh, then you know we don't need to waste each other's time. Trading for a living is not for everyone. In fact, starting your own business can be a very lonely venture. And when investors look at a manager, perhaps this is one of the questions they need to ask. Are you happy doing what you do? Having a clear purpose with your trading and your business and knowing why you do what you do? Well, that's what we're talking about in today's episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, confidence and courage you need to invest like or invest with one of the top traders in the world. It is the stories you never get to hear set out as the most honest and transparent account that I can make of what goes on inside the minds of some of the best investors in the world delivered to you via a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Today you're listening to episode 53. If this is the first episode you've heard, you might want to go back and listen to all the earlier conversations. But before we go any further, let's find out who's on today's show. Hi, this is Tim Pickering from Auspice Capital. You are listening to Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks for doing that, Tim. And by the way, if you want to read the full transcript of today's episode, just visit the toptradersunplugged.com website where you'll find lots of details about today's guest. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Tim, thanks so much for being uh, with us today. I really appreciate your time. It is my pleasure. Great. Tim, now you've been around for a long time and you've been able to experience and make friends with many of the first generation of managed futures firms. Uh, but you've chosen to take uh, a step further. And if I recall correctly, you consider your firm and, and approach as the next generation of managers. So I'm very intrigued to find out more about this and what this really means um, and you've also developed some new types of products to help bridge the gap between what investors need and what we as an industry have been providing so i think this would also be a, a great talking point uh, when we dive into the details later today but before we jump into that i just want to start out by asking you uh, a simple question which i try to ask all of my guests um, because I appreciate that there are many different answers to this question and it goes something like this when you meet people for the first time say at a social event who don't know you and who don't know your industry if they ask you what you do how do you explain that what's your response that is a uh, you're starting with a very tough question um, <laughs> You know, generally the way I approach meeting people, especially people I don't know, it, it, it depends really on the context of that person and the environment. Um, sometimes I just feel like answering, well, we're a hedge fund because that makes them go away. Sure. <laughs> and, and if I say we are a CTA, um, that also often makes them go away depending on the, the context of the meeting. Um, you know, at the heart of, of many people that I meet um, from an entrepreneurial perspective, often my answer is um, I'm a financial entrepreneur. Um, I have a background in investing institutionally. 
Um, and I've now started a firm that manages products for investors of all types, from retail to institutional. Um, I generally try to get away from a label, I'm a this, I'm a that. At the end of the day, and I think you touched on it in your intro, um, we've tried to approach uh, being a CTA or being a manager a little bit different and really view ourselves as, as entrepreneurs more than anything. Um, managing money is one thing. Uh, managing a business is very challenging. And so I really try to talk about the relationship and the business side and those challenges because those generally are things that everybody can relate to. Sure. No, I like that. I appreciate that. But anyway, we're not going to let you off that uh, that quickly. <laughs> so, uh, so you know, my my philosophy a little bit here, Tim, is that if you don't know the story, you don't really understand the numbers. And so what I really would like you to do is tell me your story, uh, put as much color on that you think is relevant, uh, you know, as, as possible. And, you know, even from when you were growing up as a kid, you know, what was influencing you uh, to eventually end up uh, taking the path that you, you did. So I'll, I'll leave it with that and, and let you uh, dive into that, uh, that topic. Sure. Uh, well, you could go back a long ways. I mean, I grew up, uh, I come from a farming family. Um, we moved from the province of Saskatchewan here in Canada to uh, Calgary, Alberta. Calgary is the, um, the base for uh, Canadian oil production in Canada. And Canada is the third largest uh, oil reserve in the world. So it's a very uh, significant place to be. Um, but when we moved to Calgary in 1981, um, this was at the height of what was called the National Energy Program in Canada. Interest rates were, you know, over 20%. And it was quite a chaotic time to move into Calgary. And, and probably the biggest influencing thing for me at that time that has filtered into my life and, and my business and, and thus my trading has been a, uh, a fear of over levering oneself and debt. I'm very conservative in my investment approach. I'm very conservative with my own capital, my own money. And that has really filtered into the, the uh, investment approach that I've taken. Uh, it's really been about discipline, about uh, minding the bankroll. And uh, that really has been an influencing thing to me. Where did that fear come from, if I may just interrupt you? Well, I mean, Calgary, Calgary in, in 1981, 1982, um, you know, probably every second house on our street was foreclosed on because you had collapsing oil businesses, uh, very high interest rates, uh, extraordinary taxes at the federal government level in Canada. Uh, so those things really resonated with me in terms of, of discipline, debt, leverage, um, and really being careful in terms of what you have. Sure. Yeah, so I, I went to school at University of Calgary um, and uh, took a business degree. Um, I was given the opportunity to uh, uh, work at the Alberta Stock Exchange. It was a small regional exchange here in Calgary that was uh, eventually enveloped into the Toronto Stock Exchange Group as that's what they call the venture exchange. Sure. Uh, I had a great experience on the floor of the exchange. And I had already decided going into undergrad what I wanted to do for a living, and that was trade. Um, but I didn't really know what that meant. Of course, your first stop is equities. Um, you think about stock trading or stock brokering, um, you know, all sounded fine and dandy. Um, I went to school with that in mind and had a stroke of luck. Um, I was given the opportunity um, to join the Toronto Dominion Bank Trading Development Program as I graduated. Um, and uh, that was really a, uh, you know, a gift. Um, I was not, you know, always the strongest student, but I was very focused on what I wanted to do with my life. And that was trading. I just needed to figure out what that exactly meant. At TD, uh, so I moved to Toronto from Calgary. Um, TD was a wonderful experience. You were given the opportunity to rotate through various trading desks, uh, through sales and trading to figure out uh, what your aptitude is. Um, you know, through just uh, luck and, and hard work, I guess, 
I was given the opportunity um, to uh, join the um, energy derivatives uh, business, um, which included, uh, which was a part of proprietary trading. Um, and it was really to focus on my own trading development. And, and the path at TD was, was really about uh, discipline um, and uh, capital allocation. Um, and it really taught me that base. Um, you know, having, having said that, um, you know, I was looking for more, looking to develop as a trader from a proprietary standpoint and ultimately uh, left TD. Uh, I went to Shell and Shell really taught me about taking the strategies that we had developed at uh, TD and, and trading with more size and, and dealing in markets that are very volatile, like focused in the commodity and, and energy space. But I would say that despite the TD experience or in, in addition to the TD experience and the shell experience, the really the learning to trade came from the opportunity in those organizations to try. You know, I wasn't a person who walked in and, and knew exactly what I wanted to do or what type of a trader I was, discretionary, non-discretionary. I, I was given the opportunity to try different things. And out of that um, ability to try, I figured out who I was. Um, I, you know, continued to have interest in the area and, uh, and, and pursued that really as my own driver. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I, I look at those institutional opportunities as really, really just that they were opportunities to try to learn. And, uh, once I was ready, um, you know, about a decade ago, I decided to go off on my own. And, uh, you know, it's really this next step that is probably the most rewarding period of my life. Yeah. I mean, we'll certainly hear much more about that, but I thought you managed to uh, do your whole life story in a very short space of time. So let me just ask <laughs> you a couple of follow-up questions. Uh, sure. Two things that, that that's interesting to me. One is, I mean, it's rare you meet someone who hasn't left school who says, I want to be a trader. I mean, so I'm a little bit curious about the inspiration for that, even though you didn't necessarily know what it meant. The other thing I think could be quite interesting to know is what was the reaction from your family, from friends, from whoever you were surrounding yourself with at the time when you told them, I'm going to go and be a trader? I mean, how did they take that? Um. That's a good question. Um, you know, I have a, you know, I guess a part of my personality that I'm extremely determined and I, and I, you know, once I decide what I want to do, um, I find a way to put a square peg in a round hole, as I often describe it. Um, you know, it, it's kind of an un, unfading uh, determination. Um, you know, I think the thing that people could do with me is, is say no. And if you say no, I'm going to find a way to make, to make it happen. It's just part of my personality. It's obviously something I have to, to manage as well. Sure. Um, but, um, you know, I was given a lot of encouragement. Uh, my mom worked for a Canadian bank from the time she was 18. Um, and the opportunity to go to work for another Canadian bank, uh, was something my family, uh, was very proud of. Um, none of us really knew what it meant. Uh, it meant I was moving to Toronto, to the big city in Canada and the heart of Canadian banking. And, um, you know, they were just very proud of that. And uh, for me, it was a, you know, a really life-changing experience. Mm, can imagine that. Now, you mentioned your time at TD Securities and then followed up by another five or six years, uh, you know, at Shell. So right. as far as I can tell, your trading experience and market universe up until starting Auspice was really focused around the energy markets, which are certainly known as some that can produce some wild swings from time to time. And yes. I wonder, what do you think your exposure to this particular market sector so early on gave you in your future career path? Um, what do you think you, you learned just from, from that particular area um, getting into the business you're in today? Yeah, I mean, this is really a great question because um, given a, a exposure to many markets, then focusing early in my career on energy, um, you know, really, again, was another another gift because 
when I started uh, trading on the on the proprietary trading desk at TD in the energy space, um, you know there were a lot of successful traders there. Energy one is, was one of those things that you know people knew was an opportunity, but it scared people. And in the context of a conservative Canadian bank, you needed to exhibit discipline. The first systems I ever developed, the first you know trend following, and we'll get to the details of that sure. you know later. But you know we were trying to find ways to trend follow volatile markets like natural gas, and it, mm. it's quite a task in that you know natural gas will trade at thirty volatility, and then it'll be at one hundred and thirty volatility, and if you blink, it'll it'll change significantly where it is. So what we tried to do is develop. Um, essentially trend following strategies that could uh, take advantage of and take into consideration um, volatility and and volatility in the sense of of how we adjusted our entry points our exit points our capital allocation this just became also paramount mm. it's one thing to trend follow it's another thing to actually uh, take your money off the table and and to say that the risk reward of that trade has changed and really, the energy markets give you that opportunity. A, they're, they're volatile and can become very volatile. They go someplace. Um, and I believe paramount to success in those markets is the discipline to, uh, to knowing when to, uh, to um, take your capital off, off the table. By whatever definition you have, um, I fully believe in that. This deviates significantly from, you know, some of the opinions of 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 traditional trend followers, some of which I'm, you know, respect very much and I'm very close with. Um, but my own experience taught me something different. Um, it always comes up to a, a discussion about, well, if you take your capital off the uh, table when you know something's in a very volatile, trending environment. You know, what about that opportunity loss? And, um, you know, we're obviously aware of that and balance that, but we believe it is very, uh, important to being successful in volatile times, you know, really knowing when to hold them and knowing when to fold them. Sure. Um, I mean, you've mentioned the word discipline a couple of times and, you and I, uh, you know, have uh, mutual friends from 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 the group of turtles who clearly were taught to trade and taught certain rules. Um, but can you actually teach people discipline? Do you think, or do you have to be born with that? So it's another great question. I think I think you can try to learn discipline. I think, like anything, you know, you can make efforts towards this. But I think, you know, like anything, you're born with certain, you know, you're born with certain attributes and, um, you know, and certain DNA. And, and I think certain people, uh, just have maybe that a little bit more in them or, or, you know, this is the nature versus nurture discussion. Did their experience, uh, you know, take them down this path? And I think, I don't know which combination of it is, is it for, it, it is for me, but, but, uh, I think it's probably both. But, you know, this part of it, um, it's like a self-discovery process. You know, mm. what type of trader are you? And if it is if it is a type that needs the discipline, you learn quickly that you either you either do that and you accept that or you fight it. And those that fight it um, don't have a long career in it. And those that don't, it's not even a question. And, and so for myself and, and my partner um, here at Auspice, Ken Corner, um, this is something that is not even a question for us. It's never been a question. It hasn't been a question in, you know, 15, 20 years. So um, it doesn't even get discussed. It's, it's about the discipline. Yeah. And, 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 and maybe also an important point to make to the audience that, that you and Ken actually worked together for a long time before you even started the business. So I think that's also quite... That's right. It was, it was uh, yeah, five years at Shell prior to starting Hospice. So. Yeah. Now, you've kept the commodity theme at the forefront of your product development why why is that yeah it's a great question um well because uh commodities we believe are a great opportunity meaning uh commodities have different volatility characteristics and different uh um, different um uh, trend uh type experiences 
And we believe that if you are disciplined and, and you know, you've got your risk management and capital allocation approach uh, down and solid, commodities are a very important uh, diversifier within the portfolio and very opportune. And, and again, we started there. We started within this conservative bank sure. uh, on the commodity side. And so we're very comfortable in that in that uh, in that space. And, um, you know, it is a differentiator. Um, we, you know, we don't force commodity exposure, but we uh, we are absolutely um, you know, happy to uh, to focus on it. Some of the products that we've developed, including, you know, the, the pure beta you know, uh, ETFs like the natural gas ETF and, and, and about to launch a Canadian crude oil ETF. Um, you know, some of these products are based on our experiences and looking at what the market's demanding. Um, but we are very comfortable in the commodity space. But, you know, the one thing I would say is we don't like to be pigeonholed that that's the only thing we do. It, it's based on opportunity. If it was, mm. You know, if it was somewhere else, then we'd focus somewhere else. But so uh, we feel that's the best opportunity for our skill set, at least to have it as an as a possibility. Sure. No, absolutely. Now, <clears throat> before we jump uh, further into sort of the the uh, uh, you know more specific topics, I just wanted to ask you a, a sort of a personal question, and that is, when you're not busy doing research and running auspice, what do you like to do? Hmm. Um, you know, my, my focus in life is, is my friends and my family. Um, you know, uh, so that is, is a big part of what I, what I like to do. We live here on the edge of the Canadian Rockies and, and uh, spend a lot of time in the mountains. In the winter, I'm a skier, a snow skier. In the summer, I'm a water skier. Um, so I've got that, that down. Um, and uh, those, those are kind of uh, things that keep me busy. One, one thing that's interesting about our office is... Uh, um, we have a small music studio in our office. Uh, a lot of us come from a, a background where we played music and maybe aspired to something in that when we were young. Great. And so we've got a, a little studio here in our office where um, some members of our team go down and, and put on headphones and, and play music. And, uh, you know, it, it's something that's a great release. Um, but interestingly, you know, it's it's a, it's a very similar thing. It's about discipline. It's about practice. It's about uh, patterns. Um, it's a very similar type of uh, a passion um, that we have to uh, to participating in the markets. So when I need a new jingle for my podcast, uh, Tim, <laughs> you're the you're the guy to call, right? <laughs> already alluded to it a little bit but i think this is something we need to talk about some more we often hear about trend following and how it's been the most successful strategy over many decades and in many market cycles but following a trend and capturing a trend is not really the same thing how do we how do you explain the difference and why is it important to make this distinction uh, do you think yeah, another another really elemental question. I mean, um, you know, I think it just comes back to that experience I had very early on that, you know, it was fine to define a trend and, and participate in the momentum of something. Um, but when that when when that asset has the ability to um, to get very volatile, very quickly, reverse direction, um, we we believe the best way to to um, participate in that market was to have some way of of defining that risk and adjusting our positions quickly, um, such that when the probability of of continuing to make mark to market gains was diminishing, that we would make an adjustment. and And we really believe that the trend following is fantastic. It's it's the base um, of returns, but trend capturing is, is where you're humble enough to say, look, um, you know, something has changed, uh, the risk has changed, and maybe the risk of keeping these mark-to-market gains has changed. Um, we're okay with that, um, you know, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll take our capital off the table to keep those gains. Um, it really comes down to, uh, 
you know, eating some humble pie and saying, look, I don't know where things are going to go. They've been really great. The risks have changed and, uh, and I'm willing to, to, uh, to move along. And maybe just to clarify, Tim, um, so what you're really saying is that often changes in volatility can be a precursor of change of direction in, in markets. Is that how you see it? I mean, you know, what you're bringing up is it's so timing appropriate. I mean, if you think back to, say, 2007, what did we see? We saw volatility in the fall of 2007 really start to pick up. Sure. This was you know, nine months plus in front of anything known as the financial crisis, we had that precursor. Volatility was starting to gain. Mm. Um, did we know what that meant? Nobody has a crystal ball. But volatility uh, tells you a couple things. It, it, it tells you something about risk, obviously, but volatility has persistence. And if volatility has persistence, um, it doesn't just disappear, um, then, you know, it becomes a great opportunity. And so we really focus on that volatility component um, uh, as, as, a, as a guiding light in terms of what is going to happen um, and what the opportunity is going to be. Mm, no, absolutely. There's one thing I wanted to, um, to ask you maybe to expand upon a little bit because I've heard it mentioned, I think even uh, also mentioned by, by you, and that is the difference between capturing closed equity and open equity. And we've already touched upon trend following versus trend capturing. But I think a lot of people are a little bit confused when we start talking about closed equity and open equity. You know, what, what, what does that really mean? Do you have a simple way of explaining sort of what, what this is? You know, my, my analogy would be explaining to an investor that, um, you know, we've, we've uh, been doing very well. Um, the, uh, we've made these mark to market gains. Um, we've gone on this, uh, we've made a bunch of returns and then you get to a period at the end of the year and all those returns disappear except for say, you know, whatever, 10%, let's say you've had, you've been up 25%, you've lost 15, you're still up 10. Right. Uh, you should be very happy. You had a positive year to me that explaining that outcome to an investor. And I think back to explaining that outcome possibility to an institutional team, like I had in, in my previous life, that's bad on two levels. One, you, you lost a bunch of the money, uh, two, and, and very importantly, you've increased the volatility of your returns. Sure. So you've changed the profile of your investment. And so really, um, we looked at that, combination as, as, as really key to what we needed to provide to our institutional relationship. And now as we've, we've built Auspice, um, let's look at those mark-to-market gains and let's judge them. Are, are, you know, do we have a good chance of keeping those mark-to-market gains or is that probability of keeping mark-to-market gains diminishing? And if that probability is diminishing because we have defined uh, risk in a certain way, um, then we are only too happy to, to take those off the table and to take profits. Mm. Um, this does go against that traditional, um, you know, trend following approach where, you know, you, you ride the volatility, um, you know, uh, for a, a very long period of time and, and come hell or high water. Um, so we've tried to, in our own experience, that wasn't the way to, to manage a book. And that wasn't, and, and it comes back to, um, you know, looking at who is your investor and what are they trying to accomplish? Um, I think it's one of the things that, again, um, you know, this gets to the business side of, of being a fund manager. It's, you know, and I've had many, many a debate with, with people in our industry about this is you know, what is the right thing to do from an investment perspective? And what is that combination of, of the trade, the investment for the investor and the business? Um, and we believe there's a right combination of those things. I don't think it's any surprise that some of the biggest uh, funds in, in this space in the world have made adjustments to their volatility profile, the markets they trade, uh, the leverage they employ um, to, to make things more palatable for whatever their investor type is. They've been some of the most successful. That has to be acknowledged in this industry. Um, and it's something that we, when we started Auspice, that we felt was uh, critical to, 
to uh, growing a different type of CTA business and long-term success. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with that. And it's, it's very interesting because in some ways you can say that investors on one hand may have some unrealistic expectations because they see all the markets that global macro or CTAs are trading and inherently they are volatile markets, but they think that we have this magical formula that we put them into a system and you right. know away goes the volatility and we just come out with a 1% monthly return every you know every time and of course that's not how it happens but and i know that you're no. right about the people who have been able to reduce the volatility have certainly see received a lot of the allocation in recent years and I, it reminds me of a presentation i saw just a, a few weeks ago uh, uh, here in switzerland and it was a very very large very successful private equity firm uh, talking about their process and and the question came about you know so how do you how do you value your positions and they basically said well we just look at the EBITDA and we you know have some magic formula that that comes uh, you know after that which essentially meant that they were marking uh, their their positions uh, in a very non volatile way because they were completely uh, you know ignoring uh, that equity markets during those you know periods back in 2008 uh, were falling you know 30 40 50 percent yet they were using a particular formula to value all their equity so you know in that way you can certainly take out volatility of your returns and maybe that is why people are attracted to these type of strategies but in the real world where we are marked uh, to market as you say every day um, it's much more difficult um, anyway that was just uh, no I, I would add to that I mean in the real world, um, and this goes for if you are, you know, any type of an entrepreneur, and we could call that an investor in a way you've invested in a business, investment returns don't come in straight lines. They don't come in nice weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly blocks. People sure. that have made extraordinary business gains, whether it's the Ubers of the world, this didn't come in a nice 45 degree line. Sure. And, and when you look at what we do, um, not, any one of those individual components, you know, pick an equity market we trade, pick a commodity market we trade, the returns don't come in a nice 45 degree line. When you combine them in a certain way, and this comes down to really the, you know, you know part of the science of it, when you combine these non-correlated assets together, you have a little bit more of a chance mm. of smoothing it out a bit. And I think that that recognition that there's this human need for something more consistent has has served some of the managers who have led the forefront of that very well, um, being more consistent. Uh, it's the biggest challenge to to what we do because again, investment opportunity does not come in steady steady uh, you know a steady drip. It comes in bursts, okay. and and that becomes the challenge. And that's why. You know, I believe one of the, the challenges in marketing CTA type strategies to, you know, the, the general investor is the human side of, of an investor wants constant gratification. That's, that's a, a human element. And, and we simply don't provide that as an industry. Those that can do better at that have clearly have, have done better at marketing the product. Sure. And, and in a sense, it goes back to the fundamental discussion about convergent risk-taking and divergent risk-taking. And, and there is a, a reason, I think, why most people probably would prefer a convergent strategy where you have lots of small gains and suddenly have a big right. crash uh, yeah. rather than what we do where you probably have a lot of flat and, 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 and negative periods and then suddenly you have the big uh, burst to the upside. But anyway, that's obviously a big topic yeah. which we uh, <laughs> could uh, spend the next hour of uh, talking. But anyway, I wanted to, before we dive into the uh, sort of the, the first uh, real specific topics about your firm, I just wanted to ask if you could give a very brief overview of the products you run. I know we'll probably talk mostly about your sort of your diversified uh, program, but you've, you've got a couple of different products and I'd love to just yeah. have an overview of, of, of that. Okay, yeah. Um, so we built uh, Auspice on a product suite type idea. So we look at uh, really returns as a continuum from alpha to beta. You know, nothing's pure alpha, um, easier to identify pure betas. Um, and we wanted to create a suite of products that met the, the needs of various types of investors, 
um, depending on on what their characteristics were um, and what they needed out of things. Um, and that really started with Auspice Diversified. So Auspice Diversified is our is our flagship longest standing strategy. It is a uh, you know when I say multi strategy, it's multi strategy in that. Um, we employ various uh, systematic trading methodologies within that. They range from short to long. It is unconstrained in our mind in that we are always looking for uh, different return drivers and improving what we do from a risk management and capital allocation standpoint. So it's it's the strategy that's been around the longest and uh you know and it has had fantastic years and years like 2008 2010 2014 once we started auspice diversified after starting the business in 2006 we realized you know we're, we're going to need a few years to to develop our track record what are we going to do in the meantime and we went to the other end of the spectrum we went right to the beta side we developed a uh, a natural gas uh, index and, and ultimately an ETF uh, based on the price of Canadian natural gas. So this came out in early 2008. Why would we do that? Why would we want to launch a beta product? Ultimately, uh, we wanted to do a couple things. We wanted to diversify our revenue streams away from uh, just one type. We wanted to pay the bills while we were uh, developing our track record on the alpha side of the business. Um, and we also wanted to learn. We wanted to learn about ETFs and indexing, which we feel, felt were you know, important in traditional asset allocation, asset management, but that would eventually become important in alternatives. And I think we've seen that develop. Um, by starting with natural gas, which we were very familiar with from our shell days, um, we could learn about how to how to develop indexes, how to partner with uh, uh, index distributors, index publishers, exchanges, um, and and also partnership with companies like ETF and mutual fund companies. So it was a learning process. So now we had Alpha at one end, and again, I'm I'm you know taking some artistic license. It was our product tilted to Alpha, mm-hmm. and a, and a more beta natural gas product. After 2008 happened and, and we had, uh, you know, really great results, uh, one of our partners came to us and, and we started discussing, you know, what is the possibility of taking what we do in Auspice Diversified into this same space of ETFs and indexing? And we realized uh, that was a great opportunity. It would probably take some time to develop, but um, we could do that, but not with with our flagship program the way it existed at that point. We to fit into the ETF and index world, you really have to have a, a different level of transparency, um, and we felt sort of a, a different kind of product, product with the same heart and the same focus and the overall same thesis uh, would be there, but that we would develop a product that would be specific for that environment. And so we developed two products, um, Auspice Broad Commodity, which is a long, flat uh, commodity approach, um, and Auspice Managed Futures, uh, which is a uh, a long, short managed futures approach um, that includes commodities and financials. Um, So with that suite of products, uh, we felt that we could meet the needs of different types of investors. And this really goes to a couple of things. It goes to transparency, mm-hmm. it goes to liquidity needs, and it goes to cost. Sure. Um, and each one of those things is priced differently. Once you're able to identify the return drivers in a simple way, um, we have this edge in being systematic, uh, non-discretionary traders and that that's easier to do. Um, once you can do that, you can more easily price the product appropriately. Mm. What is that return driver and what value does it add and what distribution channel does it fit in and, and what's the right price for that product? And this is where we, the business side comes in. It's the right product for the right investor from an investing standpoint at the right transparency, liquidity and cost element mm. as well. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, it, it kind of went from there. We partnered with uh, various ETF companies here in Canada uh, we have partnered with uh, a company in the U.S. called Direction on the mutual fund side uh, back in 2012 um, for the 40 Act space. 
Um, and it's it's looking at the product suite and saying, what is the right product for that environment, for that investor, for that cost point? Um, and, and, and really building a business around uh, that concept of, of product, partnership. Um, obviously, the third P is performance. Um, that's kind of the given. Um, you know, you have to be able to perform. Um, but those other elements matter. Um, and certain of these products fit better into different channels like ETFs or indexes or 40 act mutual funds than the others do. Um, so we pick the right product for the right environment and, and, uh, and, and find a distribution partner. And, and hopefully, uh, you know, the hardest part, to be honest, of what we do is, is running the business and raising capital. Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, I may want to circle back on this because I think actually uh, these product suites, uh, I see more and more of this and I think it's becoming more and more important actually. Um, so maybe we uh, we circle back and, and, um, and talk a little bit more about that later on. Let me ask you a little bit about how you structured your business, because I think that's also uh, important. When people hear all the things you do, all the markets you track, trading different models and so on and so forth, um, then obviously technology and how you structure your business is, uh, is quite important. Um, how have you chosen to do it um, in, 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 in your case? Well, again, I mean, it comes back to um, the sort of advantage we have as as uh, systematic non-discretionary uh, traders in that, uh, you know, I don't need 17 analysts telling me what way to think on a stock. Um, you know, we have our methodologies. Um, we embrace technology. So that is key and elemental to, to any quantitative trader um, and CTA. Um, and so by virtue of being non-discretionary, let's just call that, you know, rules based, um, I don't need a massive, massive infrastructure. Um, you know, you need to have all the bases covered most definitely, but as you're growing your business, um, you can accomplish a lot through the efficiencies of technology. And so, um, we focus here at Auspice on what we're good at, and that is, is, uh, strategy, rules-based strategy development and research and product creation. Um, and in general, we partner with people good at distribution and sales and those things that can really bog you down. Um, look at, look at the regulatory environment. Sure. If you want it to be in every market, US, Canada are even very different and you want to be in different markets within Europe, as you know, there's a lot of different regulatory regimes. It can be very consuming, very costly. Um, and by building up partnerships um, as a boutique firm, we could consider those things much earlier than, um, than we would have otherwise. So it really boils down to creating partnerships so we can focus on what we do best and let other people or partners focus on what they do best. And, and, you know, and, and this really goes down to even meeting an individual investor, a high net worth investor, a, a family office. It's the same thing. They've made their money in a certain way. Uh, they're good at doing that thing. They're probably good at investing in that area. Um, and we look to forge partnerships with them so we can bring them something that they're not good at um, and, and, and bring them something else. It really comes down to these partnership elements. And I'll make one other side point. I mean, sure. you know, I was I was a proprietary trader. I didn't have experience with clients. I didn't have experience with relationships in general. Um, you know, this has been sort of the transition. Is 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 building partnerships is really the key to any business. Why would we think you know being a CTA or running a, a fund management business was any different? People always talk about it's all all about the numbers. Of course, that's important. That's first principles. But building partnerships is how you uh, grow any type of business. And this is uh, this business is no different. No, I mean, I completely agree with that. Um, but it does leave a challenge for uh, for all of the people who are trying to do it this way. And that is 
how do you convince an investor, and I guess in this case probably an institutional investor, that a team of four or five or seven can compete with a team of 50? I mean, how do we, how do we give people that uh, comfort that uh, you know, there are ways to, uh, to essentially deliver the same rigor, the same robustness, the same diligence, um, have you found the magic way of of, uh, of overcoming those uh, kind of questions, which I guess we all get, uh, you know, as we talk to the to the larger uh, types of investors? Yeah, I mean, you know, what you're talking about is is obviously a huge challenge in making the jump from you know a certain size to another size, mm. and you get asked those questions, and and here's the. Uh, challenge I would give many to think about. So many of us come from some sort of an institutional trading background. Think back to when you were on a bond desk or a currency desk or an option desk at some bank or some oil company, and you probably ran a very large portfolio. And how many people were there worth you doing that? You know, in my case, I had one other, you know, second in command. We had a sort of a person and a half or a couple people dedicated back office. So you were three or four people, right? You weren't a team of 50. And again, I'm speaking on the quantitative side, not speaking on an equity, uh, an equity sort of story. Um, but you didn't need, you didn't need 50 people. What you needed was, uh, your discipline, your strategy, the infrastructure. Yes. And that organization provided you the regulatory possibility to do that thing and the efficiencies, but it didn't take that many people. And this idea that you need a hundred people to do what we do is, is in my mind, you know, it, it's, it's just not needed. And, um, you know, maybe you'll grow to a certain size where you've got so many distribution channels and regulatory challenges that you'll need more of that. And as you grow, you'll need execution um, uh, elements dealt with, and that'll take more people. But again, most of these things come at such a, a much higher level um, that uh, we just we just choose not to focus on that right now. Um, you know, we hope to grow like everybody else. Uh, probably every business at any size has that goal. Um, but you know, this mindset that you need. 100 PhDs to compete against, uh, you know, another firm, um, you know, I, I think is is just an excuse. And, um, you know, I choose to, uh, to not, you know, just ignore it. I can't fight it. It is no, what no. it is. Yeah. So, you know, I just move along. If, if that's the difference between somebody investing with us and not, um, you know, uh, then, you know, we don't need to waste each other's time. Sure. No, that's fine. I mean, incidentally, it's quite interesting because often you see that very small teams of people uh, at these institutional investors are managing, you know, billions of dollars. So it's kind of Absolutely. contradictory to say that we couldn't do the same. But anyways, that's uh, maybe also yeah. for another discussion. I want to move on to uh, to the to the next topic, which is really the track record, because uh, sure. as I said to you early on, I mean, if you don't know the story, you don't understand the numbers. So let's talk about the numbers a little bit. Um, I mean, track records can be very difficult um, to 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 fully understand and appreciate because we know that there is innovation, changes, updates, uh, research findings involved in looking at a track record. So when people look at your track record uh, for the diversified program, how should they read it? How should they understand it? Well, um I guess there's a few things. One, um, you know, is it any good? And, and do we do well in, in critical times? I mean, that's, that's a key part. You know, it, it kind of comes down to this philosophy of, you know, what, what job are you hiring somebody to do? What, what, you know, whatever thing you have, whatever widget it is, what is the job? What is the purpose of that thing? Sure. Um, you know, it, it, our, our role is, is to be a diversifier. Our role is to make absolute returns. And part of that absolute return story is to make returns at times um, that are challenging 
to other strategies, meaning traditional asset allocation in general. I'm not going to, you know, we're not going to change the mind of the world's investors that these stocks and bonds are the way to invest anytime soon. But alternatives, uh, you know, are obviously becoming more and more accepted institutional on down to retail. Can we do our job at that key time? And so, you know, immediately at 2008 gets picked on and says, you know, how did you do in 2008? Okay, you did well along with all other managers. Great. I think most people, they need to dig in a bit to the story of, of a 2008, you know, uh, not only just how well did you do, what are the risk elements of that, um, you know, by various measures, margin to equity, various other things. But then let's go to a different environment. Let's, let's look at a 2010 when it's a period of recovery in these traditional assets, how did you do? Uh, so you did you did well, so that's great. But let's dig a little deeper. Um, if you look at the returns of your strategy in a 2010, and the you know the stock market also performed very well in 2010, what is the correlation of those returns? Were you accretive uh, to traditional asset management even in a good time like 2010? You'd be, you'd be ignorant not to consider periods like 2011 through 2013, this so-called challenging time for CTAs. You need to look at, uh, if your strategy uh, underperformed at that, at that time, what were the reasons? Um, you know, we have all sorts of ex- excuses that come up or, you know, what I call cop-outs that come up in that time period where people say, well, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't, uh, perform because there was central bank intervention or we didn't um, uh, we didn't perform because there was no trends in the market in 2011 through 2013 there clearly was central bank interventions which can be a very good things for trends as most of us know so that can't be used and we can say well there was no trends well there was there you know it was very focused in certain asset classes like equities but there were some great trends and so how did you do in that in that time frame? You know, for us, um, you know, it was a challenging period for us. Um, we performed well in, in those markets that trended like equities, but we are slightly commodity tilted and commodity was, you know, uh, tougher to find trends in those times. So so we didn't do as well. And so that becomes our quest to do better in those times. And that becomes the focus of our research. How do we do better um, in those times? But if you dig deeper within, say, that time period, there were some interesting things that happened in 2010 and 2011. 2010, we had the Greek debt crisis. We had the flash crash. We had general economic slowdown uh, during 2010. The stock markets corrected 12 to 13 percent in a short period of time. How did you do during that very aggressive correction? Did you provide some value? If you fast forward to 2011, we had the Euro debt crisis. Um, the stock market's corrected anywhere from 15 to call it 17, 18%. How did you do during that time? And so it's dissecting the environments and saying, did you do your job during that environment? Now, I'll add in this, this most recent time period, and that is uh, 2014. So 2014 kind of goes against um, what everybody's been talking about for C- with CTAs. CTAs make ta- uh, money in times of financial crisis. When the equity market gets gets hurt, we're this uh, crisis alpha, um, whatever you want to call it. Well, if we look at 2014, the equity market hasn't corrected aggressively at all. Um, there has been no crisis, financial crisis per se, um, yet CTAs are performing very well. And why is that? And it comes down to, well, you've had a period of volatility expansion. You've had some trends come back into different asset classes. Did you do your job in that time frame? And then you can do the peer-to-peer comparison, and, and that's up to you know all investors. They will they will do that. That's their job. Um, but I guess it comes down to you know why pick an auspice over somebody else? You know, of course, returns are important. Did you do your job in the in the key times? Um, and, and really, um, what is that relationship with the investor and, and what are you doing to continuing to grow a business? Are you going to be around in another, you know, three, five, 10 years or whatever your number is? Um, and, um, you know, we're very committed 
not only from a return perspective, but from a business perspective and a partnership perspective. And at the end of the day, um, those are some of the key decisions um, that people will make in terms of if they're going to uh, trust you with their capital. Um, so it really boils down to the one thing is that, you know, did you do the job you were hired to do? Sure. No, I mean, uh, I appreciate that. And I mean, it's quite interesting um, and, and maybe not surprising that uh, I think the surveys that were done by some of the large uh, brokerage houses back in Q4 2013 asking, so which alternative strategy do you believe will perform best in 2014? Um, only 2% said CTAs. Uh, yeah. and, 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 and here we are 12 months later yeah. and it's, uh, uh, you know, we're knocking uh, the ball out of the park, um, as they say. Um, but the other thing I thought was interesting in your comment, that is, I remember back in 2009, a lot of people came and said, oh, you know, it's great to have CTAs in the portfolio because they they help when equities go down because they're non-correlated. And essentially, uh, in my view, uh, that was a false, you know, uh, statement because it's not the non-correlation uh, per se. That just means that they're non-correlated. It doesn't mean that they necessarily make money when equities go down. But But I sense from you that that may be part of what you're trying to do with your strategy to be maybe more sure to make money in times of equity stress. Is is that the case or is it just that you want to be non-correlated and not necessarily, uh, it doesn't really matter when you make money as long as you you know make money? So what's interesting about what you said to me is, is the difference between non-correlated and negatively correlated. So we don't try to make money at times of equity crisis, i.e. negative correlation. We're, we're non, we try to be non-correlated. That's our goal is non-correlated absolute returns. So it surely isn't just at that time of crisis. Um, you know, again, 2014 is really an important year in making that point is, you know, equity markets doing just fine. I mean, it is more volatile and everything else, but, um, it really shows that we bring more to the table from a non-correlation uh, absolute return standpoint than negative correlation or crisis alpha. And so that is our goal at Auspice is to be, you know, is to be a diversifier, to be a non-correlated absolute return component, as opposed to just this crisis alpha, you only hire a CTA when you think the equity market's going to drop. I've taken exception to that for the longest time. And, and we, you know, we really encourage investors to, to not think that way. Um, don't hire us just because you think there's going to be an equity correction. So let's move to the heart of the strategy, namely the, uh, the program itself. Um, I mean, before we go into all the details, um, maybe you could share a little bit about sort of from a 30,000 foot point of view, what it is the diversified program does okay um well uh you know at, it, at its heart it's it's a trend following approach um we um we employ various return drivers including um including trend following um as well as term structure as well as some pattern recognition short-term trading strategies um and a number of things that combine to create the opportunity in uh, in hospice diversified, um, you know. But again, it, at its heart, it's a diversified trend following approach. I think the the you know, some of the oldest strategies in there, as I explained earlier, come from my days at uh, at a Canadian bank where um, we were looking for ways of of trend following or what we call trend capturing uh, volatile energy markets like uh, like natural gas. Um, and so we believe that the uh, not only the strategy, but most importantly, the risk management and the capital allocation methodologies that came out of those experiences and continue to develop for the next 10, 15 years, um, provide us an edge in capturing market opportunities uh, specifically uh, in, in volatile times for those assets. Um, it doesn't have to be 100% volatility, but 
when things get more volatility, more volatile, they move and go somewhere um, and also tell you something about the risk reward of staying in those uh, investments. Um, so really those things combined, it's, 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 you know, there's the return, there's the trend side of it and the strategy side of it. And then there's importantly, the risk management and capital allocation side, which uh, we believe is probably the biggest edge. Sure. I mean, in terms so so essentially you're saying you have sort of two groups of models and please correct me if i if i uh, if i'm stating something which is which is not correct do you treat both models the same when it comes to to markets are they all allowed to are they both allowed to trade uh, all markets in the portfolio and by the way how many markets do you actually trade so we 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 look from a, a basket of over a hundred and focus down on a, a more condensed group of approximately fifty. Um, so there is diversification across what we call seven sectors: so four commodity sectors, energies, metals, grains, and softs, um, and then the financial side being rates, currencies, and equity indexes. So kind of a, I would say a classic basket of things but at maximum total risk. So let's say the whole portfolio um, had a position on um, the, the tilt uh, would be to uh, commodities. There would be more commodity risk um, by a slight amount than financial risk. We don't force that, but again, there is that opportunity if the market opportunity presents itself. Does that mean you trade both uh, models, the short term and the long term, across all markets, or does your extra risk towards um, commodities come from uh, one model being focused on maybe only commodities since it has a slight edge? Or yeah, in, in general, our philosophy is that all models um, have the opportunity um, to uh, cover all asset types. Okay. Um, however, we have. Uh, you know, we have developed um, models that are more appropriate in uh, specific types of, of uh, assets like the volatility of the energy markets as a simple example. It seems there are, you know, there's definitely certain characteristics of the different asset classes that lend certain, um, certain approaches to have a better probability of success uh, long term. Sure. Um... Now, people often focus on any one part of a, a strategy. It could be the entry point. It could be the exit point. It could be the position sizing. Um, what do you think is most important of the three? And once you've answered that, I would love to know um, if you've done anything in particular in that area that you find important to distinguish your program. So I think I think your most important part of that uh, combination is is the point at which you decide to adjust your risk. So you've decided you're going to resize a position based on your definition of risk, um, whether it's to resize it or completely um, capture that uh, mark to market gain. That that is that is really one of the key. Uh, the key drivers or the key edges we believe we have. Um, so it comes down to what we believe is our proprietary definition of risk. And so it's a combination, if I understand you correctly, of uh, the position sizing and the exit. So so you regard those maybe as, as more important than uh, than the entry itself. And I guess many people say, yeah, you know, we're all looking to get into the same trends and we're probably not getting in, into them at very different times. Um, is, is that kind of the thinking? It's exactly the thinking. Trend following as a whole isn't a very hard thing to do to identify trends or momentum. What is hard to do is when to adjust or, or, or take those risks off. Mm. And speaking about these things, obviously without giving any of the secret sauce away, can you talk a little bit about you know what you've learned and 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 how you've dealt with that in terms of 
you know, adjusting positions or even sort of exits? How how does your program really differentiate at the end of the day? I mean, I know we can all use very fine terms and say we have volatility adjust and so on and so forth, but it doesn't really mean a lot to many people. So is there a, a, a more visual way that you can describe it without giving anything away? Of Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.